I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. Come along with us on an adventure in the book of Judges. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible Book Club. Well, in chapter six, we met our fourth major judge, Gideon. Gideon, the weak warrior, we're kind of affectionately but not affectionately calling him. And you may have known about Gideon and heard of him in different Bible stories and Bible songs that we sing as a kid, but you might not have realized what a weak actual leader he was. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to get into it. And we also, last episode, began the fourth cycle of the Israelites doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, as we're starting to see this trend just happen over and over. There were several interesting differences about Gideon in this cycle. First, Gideon gets to have a lot of interaction with an angel, a special angel, mostly because he's so unsure of himself and he needs a lot of this reassurance. He does, however, take a stand for God and destroys a few of the local idols. Exactly. Well, this episode is called Gideon's Fleeces and Flaws. And if you were with us in season six, you know, I was crushing on Joshua. I just think he was probably the bomb. Um, I do not think that about Gideon. And you're going to find out why today, because he is going to get compared to Joshua a couple times. So here's our setup. We are in chapter six, kind of continuing the rest of it. And we have picked up with our fourth judge, Gideon, as Heather said, whose fleeces lead to faith and flaws lead to a fall. So in scene one, Gideon and God negotiate terms. Because Gideon wants reassurance and God wants faith. This is the famous story about the fleeces. Chapter 6, verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all around the ground is dry, then I will let you know that I will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So Gideon's faith is growing. He's been called by an angel. He's seen the Lord devour his offering. He has observed the people come around after he destroyed their idols. But he still doesn't really trust God. He says, if you will save Israel, there is no if about it. God has already clearly stated that he would. But Gideon doubts that he can become the warrior that God wants. Gideon is almost unwilling because of his obsessive fear. So Gideon negotiates for reassurance with two different tests. He wants to know for sure that God is in this and that they will win it. The first test is that a fleece would be wet with dew, but the ground dry. The second was the reverse. The fleece would be dry, but the ground wet with dew. There is much discussion about this test of the fleeces. Most of the discussion centers around whether or not it is wrong to ask God for a sign. Now, in this case, it appears that it is not wrong, because if God were offended by Gideon's request, 
stressed, he would have responded differently. I was thinking that too, because mm-hmm. if, if I was God, I would be like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? Who does he think he is asking <laughs> me to do this? Having... I'm just going to go find someone else to do this job. Well, he literally was having conversations with angels. I mean, come on. But God acquiesced and provided not just one, but two signs. In fact, of all the judges, Gideon receives more direct reassurance from God than any other judge. Now, that is not to say that we can all test God like Gideon did. In Matthew 4, Satan asked Jesus to test God by asking for a sign, and Jesus rebuked him. Some think that Gideon was trying to understand the nature of God to build his faith. Remember, he had kind of grown up in this culture of idols and all the weird things they did with them. So it is perhaps that Gideon just wanted to try to understand God. We, however, can turn to the Bible for that evidence to build our faith. And so signs shouldn't be part of our necessary repertoire to take action on God's will. Now, Gideon's fear drove Gideon to test God, and God responded. It's now God's turn to test Gideon in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham and Keturah. I know we've talked about this before. These people were all half-brothers of Isaac and therefore distantly related to the Israelites. They were mentioned in the last episode because of Jael, a Kenite from the tribe of the Midianite people. These people are also related to Moses through marriage. His wife, Zipporah, was a Midianite. But just as the relationships between the tribes of Israel are breaking down, more to come on that, so are the relationships with past alliances. The Midianites have become formidable foes. Israel, in contrast to the Midianites, had no standing army at this time and won't until we get to King Saul. As a result, whenever there was a need to fight, the leader had to muster forces from the tribes in the area affected by invaders. The Israelite men gathered to fight were farmers, not trained in combat, and they lacked confidence because of it. Gideon tested God twice with the fleeces. Now God will test Gideon twice by reducing his army. Verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. The first test is the elimination of the fearful men. Fearful warriors are apparently bad for morale. In season five, Deuteronomy 20, Moses provided laws for warfare, which included a provision that any man who was faint hearted should return home. So Gideon was probably not surprised by God's recommendation. However, he probably never guessed that over two thirds of the army would leave. The large number of men who are afraid to fight is evidence that the Midianites have been brutally oppressive. But eliminating the fearful was not God's goal. He clearly states that he wants fewer men so that no one can boast that it was Israel's great army that defeated Midian. Gideon is left with only 10,000 soldiers to fight over 100,000 Midianites. Does Gideon have the faith to believe God can give him a victory with a one man against 
10 ratio. Let's see in verse four. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. The second test is the elimination of the men who drank on their knees. Dog lapping theories abound. No one is sure about this, but some think the men who drank upon their knees were either weary or lazy and unfit for war. And the men that only lapped water were eager and ready for battle. And this kind of makes sense because the first test dismissed the fearful men and this test dismisses the unfit men, leaving Gideon with only those men mentally and physically fit to fight. What we do know for sure is that God's purpose was to reduce the army to a ludicrously small number. And all the men who made up the small army would have to have courage and faith in the face of such ridiculous odds. Gideon's confidence must come from the Lord only. It's not going to come from 300 men against 100,000 men. I do think we should give Gideon a little bit of credit here because we're kind of down on him in this story, uh-huh. but he actually did what God told him to do there. And it is kind of a weird thing. You it's know, really you had weird. to kind of be like, okay, God, whatever you say, but he actually did it. So he does have obedience and he is trying to at least oh, no, do what God's Oh, no, this is his crowning moment. What we're about to read is for sure Gideon's big deal. Oh, that's as good as it gets. This huh? is huh? This is going to be as good as it gets, but it's good, like you said. And he is kind of listed in the Hebrews Hall of Fame. So 300 to, they say it was about 120,000 are really courageous odds. Um, But the Lord is going to get all the glory. Now, here's the challenge to us. What odds are you facing? Do you believe that God can overcome any odds against you? Will you let him fight the battle for you? Because that is what Gideon must do. Gideon must let go of fear and let God lead. All right, scene two, God gives even more. God knows the heart and God knows your heart. And certainly God knew Gideon's heart. Gideon is still afraid and I cannot blame him. He is down to 300 men. How is a victory possible? He's got to be thinking. So God gives more. He provides more proof that if Gideon will trust him, the victory is sure. And this time, God provides it without even being asked because God wants us to have faith, not fear. Continuing on in verse eight. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you were afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost 
of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as the man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. Okay, so this is kind of um, confusing for us. A big jump there between this barley bread to all of a sudden they think it's Gideon, but, but track with me here. Knowing Gideon's fear, God wakes Gideon and gives him an assignment. If only we could have some such personal and specific instructions from God, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you love that? Gideon sneaks down to the Midianite camp as instructed and overhears the one out of 100,000 soldiers who had a dream about a loaf of barley. Not an accident, that's God. So what does this dream have anything to do with Gideon? Two symbols gave this little dream meaning. The bread and the tent. Barley bread was the most inedible bread. It was very tough and the food of the poorer oppressed classes representing Gideon, who, if you remember, was secretly threshing wheat in a wine press when we met him, possibly trying to be better bread than a barley man. So that's kind of odd. The tent would have indicated in that day the general's tent. The bread struck the tent and overturned it, symbolizing Gideon, the poor oppressed one, and the Israelites' destruction of the Midianites and their leader at the tent. I never would have known that had I not read a lot of commentaries. <laughs> commentaries because otherwise, it's just such a weird dream. Mm -hmm. The irony here is that the Midianite says, God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands, which is exactly what God said to Gideon in chapter six. And that here's the real irony and that hearing it from God did not convince Gideon, but hearing it from a Midianite did convince Gideon. That's a good point. Is Gideon influenced more by his culture than God? Ouch. Such a good question for all of us. At this point, Gideon worships God and sees God's divine hand in the glory of the battle that will surely be victorious. However, after this, all dialogue with God ceases, and we do not know if Gideon ever worshipped God again. Scene three, God uses Gideon for his good. Verse 15, Gideon returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached to the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 
All right, side note here. The soldiers cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, because Gideon instructed them to do that, which for the Lord and Gideon, I don't recall Joshua ever inciting such praise. Did the men agree to say that because they sense Gideon's desire for glory? Continuing on in verse 21, while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Menor near Tabith. The victory was reminiscent of a Jericho moment. Gideon and the Israelites, like Joshua at Jericho in season six, have nothing to do with the victory. It was all God. They didn't even lift a hand except to shake some jars and make some noise. The battle was probably even humorous from their point of view for the Israelites to watch. It is thought that the timing of the execution was key to the victory. So the camp, remember, was made up of a mixed army. We learned in the last episode in 633 that Midianites, Amalekites, and other Eastern peoples had joined forces. And you heard in this one that they were as like thick as locusts. They're just everywhere, all over the place. It was an extremely large army, but not necessarily coordinated. It is thought that the Israelites created the disruptive, noisy scene just as the camp changed guard in the middle of the night. The soldiers finishing their shift on watch would have been just exhausted and sleepy. And those just starting their shift, not quite awake. I don't think they had coffee back then. Those still asleep who weren't on shift would have been startled by the noise and confused. So the soldiers in the camp from all these different nations panicked in the dark and may not have recognized each other as they were such a mix of nations. And it was dark. You know, okay, the lights are way up on the hill where they are, these lands, but that wouldn't have shone down. So they're running around in the dark in this camp, tripping over camels is what I envision, and pulling their swords out. And many turned on each other in battle and killed each other and fled. And the Israelites just stood up there and watched, just 300 of them. So God kind of prepared their hearts by interpreting that dream. And so they were already scared. And then when the Israelites created this chaos, then they all went into chaos on their own. Exactly. Yeah. And only God can go ahead just of like you Jericho. and do something like that. Remember just Jericho, like they just walked around creating stress for seven days. Like, oh my gosh, they, when are they going to attack? They're just walking around blowing these trumpets. Then when they finally did, the walls fell. It was just chaos. Yeah. And so a minute ago, Susan asked a question, what are you facing? What kind of battle are you facing that you need to have faith that God can that it might look like something that you can't achieve, but God can. Mm-hmm. And he'll do something that you don't expect and he'll do it in a way you don't expect. And then you also said, Susan, wouldn't it be great if God just talked to us and told us what to do like that? Yeah. Well, he does. He still speaks in dreams, but he mm-hmm. also speaks to you through the word. And congratulations right now, you're reading it. So God might be telling you something and all you have to do is listen. <laughs> what is your what is your um, uh, Midianite or Jericho moment? <laughs> This week. All right. Verse 23. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out. 
And they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Bara. So all of the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Bara. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the wine press of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon who was by the Jordan. To complete the defeat of the Midianites, three tribes, Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, pursued the fleeing Midianites. Gideon then called Ephraim to secure the area along the Jordan, and they captured the two leaders. Now, this is another little Bible bender for you. This closes a circle in our story of Gideon. The circle began when we first met Gideon in chapter 6, verse 11. He was hiding while threshing wheat in a wine press. Then the angel appeared, Gideon asked for his first sign, and he brought the angel an offering and placed it on a rock, where with a touch from the angel, fire consumed it. The circle closes here at the end of Gideon's first victory for the Lord. Oreb is killed at a rock and Zeb at a wine press. Surely God is once again reassuring Gideon with this sign that his divine hand is in every detail orchestrating all of life. Do you have fear, anxiety, stress? Remembering that God orchestrates every aspect of life is a challenge for us too, but we will all be a lot less anxious if we do remember. All right, scene four, the battle aftermath. We are a couple of hundred years past the day when Israel first crossed the Jordan and attacked Jericho as a United Nation. And the next scene reveals how the nation of Israel, a nation of tribes, tribes born of the same, 12 brothers, all sons of Jacob, is falling apart just a couple hundred years later. Gideon is about to come face to face with jealousy and disloyalty. His tragic response is rage and revenge. Chapter 8, we start with jealousy. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. The tribe of Ephraim is having FOMO at not being invited to the original party when they they had their lights and noises, their their noisemakers. They are jealous that the other tribes got the credit for the first major rout. Gideon responds with diplomacy and averts a civil war by quelling their jealousy. And then he moves on in pursuit of the Midianite kings where he is provoked by disloyalty. Verse four, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I'm still pursuing Zaba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, do you already have the hands of Zaba and Zalmana in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there, he went up to Padniel and made the same request from them. But they answered, 
as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Gideon crosses the Jordan River to pursue the two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. He and his men are on a mission, but they are tired. They arrive in Succoth and then Peniel, both Israelite towns. Now, it was the custom of the day, and we will see this again in the story of Abigail and David, that the villages feed the army that is protecting them as they pass through. The people of Succoth and Peniel are afraid of the Midianites and fear their wrath if they aid Gideon. You know, they're kind of thinking, oh, they'll come back and get us if we feed them. Now, as members of Israel, they are being totally disloyal by refusing Gideon. They care more about coming out on the winning side of this war than honoring God and feeding his army. Gideon responds with rage. Was he hangry? Probably. Was he justified? Yes, he was. But were his actions right or righteous? Definitely not. Somewhere between the two sides of the Jordan, Gideon lost sight of the Lord. And now Gideon is out for revenge. He threatens the people of Succoth and Peniel that on his return, he will tear their flesh and tear down their tower. His pride has blinded him and he will not tolerate anyone who dares to defy him. If Gideon were a superhero, he would be the Hulk. He is a character capable of being both a hero and a villain, depending on whether he chooses to control his emotions or not. Never did we see the spirit of uncontrolled anger in Joshua. Verse 10. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Kohor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jebehah and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Harris. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zaba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zaba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Gideon savagely executes his threats to Succoth and Peniel, the two towns that denied his army bread. He captures the Midianite leaders, Zeba and Zalmunna, as he said he would. Then he finds some poor kid and forces him to reveal the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the first town that denied his army bread. He drags Zeba and Zalmunna to those 77 officials as proof that he was victorious. Then he tortures the 77 Israelites, his own countrymen, by beating them. Next, he heads to the town of Peniel who by this time may have heard what happened in Succoth. For when he arrived, there was either a battle 
and the men of Peninial were killed, or many commentaries believe the men fled to the tower for safety, and possibly women too, and Gideon brought the tower down, killing them in the crash. But he did tell them he was going to bring the tower down. Why would they go to the tower? Well, towers in those days were, were like refuges. They lived in these shacks, you know, these little villages. So usually fortresses and towers were places of refuge. In panic, the people may have just gone there thinking, he can't, he can't, you know, do that to the tower. The irony here is that God was patient and compassionate with Gideon's obsessive fear, but Gideon showed no compassion for the fearful people of either city. Because remember, the people refused to give him bread because they were afraid that the Midianites might win and come back and torture them. But like you also said, he had a right to be mad. He just reacted in a way that was a little bit... um lacking in grace. Revengeful. Yeah, revengeful. He held on to that anger and it made him really angry. Gideon has lost sight of the Lord and has chosen his own way. He has taken the law into his own hand. Now, life is a path that branches off to good and evil really almost every day. And we have this as a printable that we've talked about it a lot. Um, So you can look it up. We'll put it in the show notes. It kind of demonstrates that this path starting way back in the beginning with Adam and Eve all along the path of life, we have choices to trust God or trust ourselves, to believe God or to deny God, to obey God or to disobey God, to glorify God or gratify ourselves. Gideon is on the path to trusting himself, denying God, disobeying God, and gratifying himself, his own anger. He wants to give vent to it. He wants to, he's literally taking people's lives. So adding fuel to the fire will lead to fury. And what happens next inflames Gideon's rage. Verse 18, then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and he was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments of their camel's necks. Gideon learns here that the Midianites have killed his family. And recall that his name means hacker. At first, he was a timid hacker, hacking down his town's Asherah pole in the dark after much encouragement by the angel. Gideon's former timid self is reflected in his son, Jether, who is afraid to kill the kings. And many, many commentaries believe this was the Lord showing him, remember what you used to be and remember that you only are where you are now because I reassured you. But Gideon is far from that timid self and has become a powerful avenging hacker. And when he's challenged to kill, he kills. Now these were Midianite leaders, so he should have killed. However, he should have also been remembering the Israelites that he killed. Unfortunately for Gideon, There is a flaw in him that likes the power a little bit too much. And is this maybe why whenever they were going down into the camp, he told them to give him the credit instead of give God the credit? The sword. He said for... for, This is for for God and for Gideon. And for Gideon. Yes. It's a little flaw he has. That's why this is this, this episode is called Fleeces and Flaws. Verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, 
rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Okay, nice try, Gideon, but no, this is not what God wanted. God wanted Gideon to lead the people back to him. But the people like Gideon's ruthless power. It infuses them with desire to follow the visible Gideon rather than the invisible God. Gideon starts out right. He refuses to be their king, declaring that only God would rule over them. But then he mixes it up. Then he makes them an idol. And mixes up the people. Yes. First, he asks for tribute like a king would in those days. Then he creates an ephod. Now, the ephod was worn only by the high priest in the tabernacle, which at this point is located in Shiloh. In making his own copy, Gideon may be suggesting to the people that he has priestly authority and that God resides in his town rather than the the tabernacle in Shiloh. Of course, the people fall in, they follow his lead, and they fall into sin. There is a danger in success. It can just be a little bit addicting. It can produce a bit of a high, a lightheaded feeling of power and invincibility, a feeling that we are in control. We are all knowing and can do it all without God. Gideon's flaw, his desire for power, has led Israel straight back into a fall. In the next episode of Bible Book Club, Gideon's spiral out of the will of God will become very personal and fatal to his family. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. Club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.